card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program. Today we're going to be summarizing our pre-Thanksgiving show. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton Statistics Department, and I'm your co-host and professor, and I work with my colleagues Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen every week producing our show, and this show is a short compendium of some of the highlights from the previous week's show. So today we interviewed Jeff Passan, an author and a commentator and a columnist. Jeff has written a book called The Arm, which is about the pitching arm and how to keep it safe, healthy, and what we know about it. It's a fantastic book. And our first guest, actually, was a professor of engineering and computer scientists, Professor Berthold Horn at MIT. And he actually came with some very interesting insights about traffic. But before we hear from our guests, let's go to our first clip. I'm going to question to try to address, I don't know if it's from a statistics perspective or more from an experimental design perspective. I got a suggestion on how we can try to answer Adi's question about whether, you know, statistics and sabermetrics has penetrated the writers. Let's have the writer, let's do two votes. Let's do a split half sample vote. Let's have half the writers vote where they know the name of the individual. And let's have the other half of the writers mm. vote where the name is stripped off. Yep. So let's just look at the data. Let, let's literally it's, strip. It's an experiment. I'm, so, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm doing a, is it Gedanken experiment? A Gedanken experiment. A Gedanken experiment. That's where a ju- great it's word. just a thought experiment where half the writers don't get to see the names of the players. They only get to see the st- the advanced statistics and the statistics. The other Which half ones? do. and. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but let's imagine we have those. I'd be interested in the correlation between... There's lots of ways you could compare the two sets of rankings. I'd be very interested to see what happened, and I would think... I'm going to make a prediction. It's a thought experiment. I get to think. I make a prediction that you would see in the unidentified one, you'd see, obviously, a massive flood towards people with sabermetrics with good data... And I think it's going to match up well. I think people are tremendously influenced by – I think people are doing rank orderings in their head based on advanced statistics like war. And I think people – in other words, it, to violate – let me put this this way. It's become the default. For me to put someone above a Mike Trout who leads the league in war, I better have a good explanation in my own mind to do so. That's the way I think sabermetrics has had a role. Well, that was Eric's Gedanken experiment, which means an experiment that you take that takes place entirely in your head. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever get to actually perform that experiment, but it is interesting to think about. I'm actually of the view that the writers wouldn't even agree to play along. I mean, one of the things about sabermetrics and its evaluation system is that it doesn't really care about the context of your performance. So if you hit your homers, got your singles, hit your doubles, made your plays, and keep moments throughout the game, those don't get to be indicated in any way in your statistical analysis and your your summary statistics for the season. And I think the writers really prefer players who've had an influence 
and therefore are valuable and have had an impact on a team that actually wins, which I think is one of the reasons why it was surprising to many of the, the writers and sabermetricians that Mike Trout was the winner this year, particularly since I do think he had some stiff competition from Mookie Betts on the Red Sox. Our next clip, we'll talk again about Mike Trout. I think that the traditional vote for MVP would not have made Trout the MVP because he was on a team that was so poor. And if you look at his numbers, they were not, you know, blow away offensive numbers. I think David Ortiz had better offensive numbers. He was, he's the sabermetric choice because it combines base running. It combines a position adjustment. It combines success in the field. And it integrates all of those into this 10 plus wins above replacement value that really nobody in the league can touch or even come close to. And that's what puts him as the MVP. I think with a random sample where that they converged. I mean, the experts were not predicting him to win, even though they knew fully well that it was the he was the best player on the field. Do you guys think um, kind of I'll call it time series should have any role in it? And what I mean by that is again, we're a statistics business show here. I'll compare Mike Trout's war to his historic average. I'll compare David Ortiz's war to both his and those for designated hitters. Like, does the reference population, like myself as my own norm, or my position as my own norm, how much do you guys think that should play a role? Like, this was the best DH season of someone over 40 we've ever seen, It was the David best Ortiz. DH no, season ever. of someone over 30. Yeah. I know, ever. I'm just saying, <laughs> do you guys think, I'm just asking your guys. I mean, positional, I mean, positional adjustments are clearly taken into account when the writers vote on this, because they, I mean, I, again. They, and you they, think we, it should? I don't. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm, I'm not I'm sure. I'm not sure it should. I, I mean, I think. I, I certainly think that DHs get a short shift in this. I mean, I think that um, just you know, again, what David Ortiz did this season, and perhaps I'm building too much into the fact that he was over 40, but it was an incredibly impressive season. I think he should have been kind of in in contention for that, and he really. We we all knew he wasn't going to be because of his position. I think that kind of segues nice and nicely into the Hall of Fame voting as well, because again, I believe there's a huge positional adjustment done for Hall of Fame voting. And there is. again, I'm not I, I I'm not particularly comfortable with that. I think it's too extreme. I think you know we're we're much more likely to vote in a somewhat mediocre hitting catcher, for example. Uh, than we are to vote in uh, a very impressive designated hitter. I am complete agreement with Shane. He's actually trying to make the case for undermining a little bit of the advantages that the position adjustment seems to be giving players. My objection has more to do with sort of basic statistics. The argument is that the position adjustment is just difficult to get right. And there is a a component, a major component of the war calculation involves kind of guessing what the impact you would be on your defense if a player moves from one position to another position and the estimation of that impact is based on frankly crappy data and so when you you make this war statistic you take these excellent numbers the offensive numbers and then you add in kind of uh, mediocre numbers the defensive numbers and I've been active and contributing to those numbers and I know that they're mediocre and then you add this crappy number this position adjustment, and then you throw in an even worse number, a park effect, and you package the whole thing together and you get something called war, and not really sure how well it really captures the entirety of the player. And so that's uh, something that I think will work out in the future as we get better and better at analyzing data in baseball. Our next guest is Bertold 
K.P. Horn, a professor of computer science and engineering at MIT, and we brought him in for something different. We're going to talk about, we talked about traffic. It was the day before Thanksgiving, and here's what he had to say. So my, my next question that I have for you is relates to, again, traffic behavior. One of the things that infuriates, well, infuriates me personally is the, uh, is the slow drivers in the left lane. And I think that creates um, all kinds of problems, traffic problems, potentially problems for accidents. But I do know that different countries have different... Um, By slow, you mean people obeying the speed limit. Well, yes, or even only five miles over it. And what this does is it creates people passing on the right and then weaving in and out of traffic. And I think my intuition says that People driving the speed limit, if you will, which people think it's their right to be in any lane if they're driving the speed limit, is it actually causes traffic congestion and it, and it, and it makes a more dangerous environment. Is there any data that supports that or mathematics? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, to those people who are hugging the left lane, all I can say is, you know, uh, please uh, dri- uh, travel to Europe and get on the autobahn <laughs> and ah. try that. You will be blown away because uh, the you know people there are very strict about the rules, and as a result, they have a much higher throughput. Um, and you know we try to make up for it by having lots and lots of lanes, uh, but it would be much better if people did use the the leftmost lane for passing only, as it says. You know. And well, it actually says it only rarely in America. Only very few highways actually have that sign. Well, we're all traditionally taught to to behave that way, but it, it doesn't take. Maybe we need more of those signs. You know, like you were mentioning earlier about the late merging, uh, it's interesting that just recently I've seen a few places where signs go up that specifically tell you about that uh, because, uh, you, you know, many of us have a hesitancy to do that, and uh, we need to put up signs saying, you know, this is okay. Well, there you have it, folks. One of my pet peeves affirmed by the experts. If you're not passing, get out of the left lane. And that's true regardless of the speed that you're going, whether it's the speed limit, five miles over, or 20 miles over. If you're not passing, get out. Now, I think the point that is really important here is that it's inefficient. It hurts everyone. It allows fewer cars to get through per second, and that's what we call throughput, and that's what he's talking about. He did allude to another um, point that we made earlier in the show. I asked uh, Bertold specifically about late merging, the idea that there's a long line of cars moving off at an entrance or an exit from a highway, and what do you, what is it? Is it okay to come in and late and cut into that line? I know that it angers many people who have waited on the line, but what Bertold told us is that it is more efficient. The late merge increases traffic throughput, and it's better for everyone. So those are two pieces of advice we got. Let's go to the next clip. What really needs to happen is there needs to be certain enough adapters to kind of basically take the pressure off the system. Yeah, Professor Warren, let me follow this is Eric Bradlow again. Let me follow up on Adi's question. So I'm a statistician. Um, I study consumer level behavior, and Adi just pointed out something we study a lot in my home field of marketing, which is heterogeneity in behavior. Some people behave one way, some people behave another. Do people in your area of computer science and engineering, when you study traffic patterns, do you study what Adi is talking about? Like there's a segment of people that are routinized, even if it's longer, there's another segment of people that are adapters. Is that a is that a rich area of study? If you'd like heterogeneity and segmentation of behaviors, um, yeah, certainly. Uh, for and you know specifically in modeling and uh, drivers' behavior, 
we have to take into account that you know, not everyone's the same. You get some aggressive drivers, you get some people who are not paying attention and so on. So when we simulate traffic in order to try and understand how to improve it, uh, we uh, do have, uh, you know, choices. We make random choices on what each vehicle's behavior is going to be. But I, I'd like to say something about, uh, you know, avoiding these kind of uh, traffic jams rather than uh, coping with them once they occur. And one of the things uh, that um, happens is that um, we have these stop-and-go traffic jams and uh, phantom traffic jams, and they've been known since, since 1930, believe it or not. There's a paper about uh, such traffic jams on the road from London to Edinburgh. So it's a problem that's been studied for a long time, hundreds of papers. Uh, but very little has been done on you know, how to solve the problem. And if you can solve the problem you may uh, not need some of these apps that you're talking about uh, because you'll be able to dramatically increase the throughput of a road, you know, number of cars per hour going in, in each lane. And uh, so that, that's the area that I'm really interested in because there is a solution. So well, let's hear it. Do you have, can you explain it to us uh, relatively um, simply? Right. So, uh, you know, when we drive, we're focused on the car in front of us. Uh, depending on the distance, and the relative speed, uh, we adjust our uh, car's speed. And we call that car following, uh, obvious term. And that's uh, the behavior that actually leads to the problem. I mean, it's, it's what, you, what you do, but unfortunately, when you uh, chain together a whole bunch of vehicles all following that behavior, you then get these instabilities. So one of them... In- really interesting takeaways here is that there is uh, this concept called the phantom traffic jam, their phantom congestion, and and it can be combated by changing driver behavior. The traffic jams that we see typically are not caused by accidents. They're not caused by traffic that exceeds the capacity of the road. They're caused by low throughput, and low throughput is tra- in translation is bad driving. And the, but the reality is that if we learn better driving habits, and in, in fact, one of the things that, that, the, that Bertolt told us is that the new generation of automatic sensors will essentially try to create the right distance both front and back in between cars on the highway, and that'll prevent congestion and therefore increase throughput, and, and we'll have just a much better experience. And we won't need um, to use Waze and Google Maps to get around traffic jams. There will be fewer of them. So it was great having um, Bertold Horn. It was a really digression for us. And let's go back and listen to something more conventional for Wharton Moneyball, baseball. And one of the projects that I've been trying to interest some of my students to, in, into working on is collecting the data and analyzing it to get really solid answers to how many innings should, you should be throwing. And, and, uh, and after Tommy John surgery, for example, how long do you wait before you go back? Mm-hmm. And I know that's been something that's a, a, cr- a critical interest of yours. It's, it's talked about at length in the book. What do we know about Tommy John surgery um, and, and how has it changed the business of pitching? Uh in in one way, you know, it's been really successful. Actually, you can argue that Tommy John surgery is the most uh, the most successful medical revolution, or at least surgical revolution in sports over the last century. Uh, it's brought back countless players whose careers were thought to be over and given them a second life. But the problem with that is Major League Baseball almost took this for granted and 
didn't realize, uh, at least in the early stages, that if you have Tommy John surgery, the chances of you coming back and getting hurt again uh, increase significantly. The, the greatest predictor of a future arm injury is a past arm injury. So the idea of injury proneness is a very real thing. And while with, with players like Tommy John himself, who got more than a decade after the surgery uh, and, and was arguably more successful uh, post-surgery than he was pre, there are plenty of guys out there who have had the surgery and simply have not been the same afterward. And it's getting, you know, the scary part is the average age of, of the, the patient is getting younger and younger. And when 60-plus percent of these surgeries are happening on teenagers, all of a sudden you're like, okay, what the hell is going on in baseball that this is infiltrating the youth market and and what can we do to stop that knowing that if you have it when you're that young, chances are you're going to need it again before you're 25. So Jeff gave us a real wonderful set of insights and facts regarding Tommy John surgery. It is over 60% uh, are done by teenagers, and the reason for that, turns out, is essentially the year-round devotion to baseball at the extreme young age, and the massive number of pitches that the kids are throwing, and the arm development, the strength training, this focus on velocity at a very young age, is simply wearing out the kids' arms, and that is causing more and more Tommy John surgeries, and what what Jeff is actually saying is getting one Tommy John surgery is likely to lead to another Tommy John surgery. And it's maybe not the best course. And in, in fact, one of the things that he rails on in his book and in our interview was this uh, society, this this organization called Perfect Game, which is um, really a showcase for, for teenagers. And it is a terrible detrimental influence on young kids' arms. And Major League Baseball is not happy with it. In our last clip, we'll hear more from Jeff. Is Tommy John perhaps not giving some of these pitchers a second chance? Uh, obviously, an injury, <laughs> an injury prone second chance, but a, a second chance that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Survival of the yeah, fittest, I perfect. think, what you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a perfectly fair argument, and that's how it was back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and going all the way back. I mean, I talked to Sandy Koufax for the book, and he told me uh, that the Dodgers used to break 600 players into spring camp every year, six hundred, and and I was like, oh my Why? god! What? Just and, for comparison purposes, how many how many players are brought into a team now? I mean, one hundred fifty. So generally, wow, you know, four times as many. Sometimes, yeah. And and I was like, why did they do that? And he said, because you would throw an arm out there and you would pitch it every day, and if it lasted, you would know it was going to be good for the regular season. And if it didn't, you just threw it on the pile of, uh, you know, broken arms and sent it off to, to the cemetery. And sorry, uh, you know, you might have been good, but you just couldn't cut the mustard. And that's why Sandy Koufax was done at 30 years old. That's why Don Drysdale was done at 32 years old. That's why countless great arms from that era and before and a little bit after before they started pairing back a little bit uh, just went through these savage arm injuries. And so to get back to your original point, I think the argument would be if you did not allow kids under 18, under 20, whatever the case it may be, to have Tommy John surgery, the way that kids under 18 or 20 are used would change instantaneously. 
So there you have it. We had a really interesting discussion with, with Jeff, and he gave us what I consider to be one of the most amazing uh, factoids, uh, courtesy of uh, Sandy Koufax, the, the number 600, 600 people showing up to training camp, to Dodgers training camp back in the 60s, and that is about four times the number that we have now, and that kind of plays into Shane's uh, theory of survival of the fittest, that the way that we used to, to weed out the bad arms is just throw them until they, they failed, and the ones that were left standing were the ones that got contracts and and had careers. Today we have Tommy John surgery, and that leads to this incredible overuse among t- teens because they can get rehabilitated, rehabilitated with the Tommy John surgery. And I think we all think that that's just really not sustainable and not good. Well, it's been another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. I've been your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton Business School. If you want to hear the full show, it is available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcast. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111, and then it is replayed throughout the week. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and stay out of traffic. Mm -hmm.